Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. Happy Mother's Day. Mother's Day is a beautiful celebration, but it can be complex, too. There's lots of people who have difficult relationships with their mothers or have lost a mother, and it can bring up a lot of feelings. And so I just hope that you understand that we recognize that. And I know even sometimes looking at somebody else and everybody's all happy and doing great, and you're feeling like, I'm, I don't feel that, can, can even feel like pressure. So I, I want you to know we're thinking about you as well. So happy Mother's Day, uh, no matter how you think about it and celebrate it or interact with it. We're, we're really glad that you're able to be here. Also, thank you for all the donations that you gave for the garage sale. We, uh, we raised a good chunk of money to help send some, some teenagers down to Mexico, and it was through stuff you had sitting in your closet for decades, and that's really <laughs> impressive. It's just sitting there, all that money just sitting there. I have a proposal. I've been thinking about this all weekend, and I almost did it, but I chickened out at the last minute. But I thought it would be awesome if some year at our garage sale, what happens is, is you donate and then you come shop for an outfit that you wear Sunday and then you can just look at everybody and be like, oh yeah, I used, they used to be mine or I used to fit in that. Wouldn't that be awesome? That'd be so cool. I almost wore this suit coat and you guys, oh, I look good, but it just took a little more than I had to pull off. So, and it belonged to a girl before me. So I thought that might be weird too. <laughs> We are in our series, The Radically Generous Heart. We're not going to try to recover everything we talked about last week, but if you were here last week, you know that we tried to address head-on the difficulty of talking about the concept of generosity at church because people feel like you're just asking me for my money. I've told you this story before, but let me just tell it to you really quick because it's really funny and it involves one of my children, and I like telling stories about them. But Liam, my youngest, when he was probably 9 or 10, he said, Dad, does the church pay you? And I said, <laughs> yes, they, they pay me. And then you could see the wheels spinning in his mind because he was like, so what you're saying is, is that when you encourage people to give money, you're encouraging them to give it to you. He didn't say that, but you could tell those wheels were turning. And he thoughtfully, I've, again, I've said this before, but I still think it's funny. He goes, so it's just a scam? Honestly, that's how a lot of people feel about the relationship of church and money and all that. And, and I hope we dealt with that enough last week. And if you have some concerns or some anxiety, some worries about that, then just go back and listen to the sermon from last week. Because we really tried to nail uh, the idea that generosity is not just about money. It's not less than money, but it's not just about money. And it's not about what, what the church needs from you. It's about how we need to loosen the, the, the stranglehold, not just money, but, but anything that we are required to share has on our lives, our, our energy and our time and any of the resources. We talked about that a lot last week. Let me do a quick poll, quick poll in the room, okay? Who is more generous, men or women? Women. <laughs> All right, women, okay, okay. Uh, who is, this is about to split the room. <laughs> who, is a, who is more generous, young adults, middle-aged adults or older adults? How many of you think young adults? Okay, a young adult thinks that, all right. Uh, how many of you think middle-aged adults? Uh, okay, yeah, how many of you think older adults? Okay, the older, no, I know there's a mix. You're not all answering that way, that's very interesting. Okay, what percentage of adults 
give of those generous adults that you're talking about? Is it 10% or less give? Is it 10 to 30% or is it 30% or more? So how many of you think it's just 10% or less? All right, okay, yeah, cynics in the room. How many of you think it's uh, 10% to 30%? Okay, and how many of you are like, oh, people are just so generous and they give 30% or more? Okay. My dad is a bell ringer for the Salvation Army. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen them. You've walked past them trying not to make eye contact when you go into the store. You know who I'm talking about. I know. My dad, an international man of mystery. You're like, what doesn't this guy do? I know. Uh, well, earlier this week, I called him and I said, hey, give me some data about generosity when you're bell ringing around the Christmas season. Because, you know, Christmas season, everybody's a little bit more into it. He sets up at the Walmart in Woodbury. So he sees some of you. Uh, <laughs> so you know. He has the red bucket, rings the bell, and I asked him, Here's, this is empirical data, folks. This cannot be disputed. It's uh, double-blind studies. <laughs> Overall, women are more generous than men. Yeah, yeah, good job, ladies. Yeah, round of applause for yourselves. And, uh, and then overall, middle-aged adults are more generous than any other category. Very interesting. Yeah, very good. And then the third one I thought was interesting, but overall, about 10% or, or fewer give. Now, if you would like to change the perception that my dad has of you and your demographic, well, then you need to go shopping at Walmart in late November or December, and you can change that. So we're in this series called Radically Generous Heart. It's not really about money or stuff or time. It's about the posture of our hearts, what the relationship our hearts have with the stuff in our lives. So it's not, again, it's not really about uh, money, and that's really important that we emphasize that. It's about more than that. And it's not really about how much. It's about whether or not our generation generosity is radical and uncelebrated. So let me tell you a, a totally not true story that you have probably seen on Facebook, which there's a lot of not true stuff on there. It's, it's been passed around thousands of times. It's as if it's been shared by a doctor. Again, remember, this is not true. Today, I operated on a little girl. She needed O blood. We didn't have any, but her twin brother has O blood. I explained to him that it was a matter of life and death. He sat quietly for a moment and then said goodbye to his parents. I didn't think anything of it until after we took his blood and he asked, so when will I die? Even that little emotion that you just had, it elicits. Even though you know that story's not true, you're still sitting there saying, oh, what a sweet young man. I wish my kids were like that, right? You're feeling that. He thought he was giving his life for hers. Thankfully, they'll both be fine. Now, this isn't true. In fact, if you look it up on Snopes or one of those uh, debunking websites, you'll find that it actually comes from a movie from 1925. It was a scenario in a movie, and it's made its way into the Chicken Soup for the Soul books and then eventually made its way onto Facebook. I have heard it in sermons as if it were fact, but it's not true. And the fact that it's not true is actually what I want to illustrate. Why is this not true story? Why does it keep getting shared all over social media because it's radically generous. It's amazing. It warms our hearts because we understand that radical generosity is a great thing. But here's the problem. Yes, I want to be generous. I want to give my time and my money and my energy and my love and my grace and my forgiveness. I want to give all those things. And then you left the room where everything felt like an ideal and you went out into the real world and you realized that mm, generosity is not all that easy to do. It's easy to idealize, but it's not easy to live out. 
Because what happens is if you want to be financially generous and you think, okay, I'm going to look for opportunities this week, that's the week that your furnace goes out. And the week that you get a flat tire or the week that you hear rumors at the company of potential layoffs or, or you realize, well, my car is getting older and I, I should probably set some stuff aside. Here's how this works for me. This may not be for you, although I suspect that it is. Radical generosity is my ideal and I love it and I'm excited about it and I want to be radically generous. But then I go out into the real world and it kind of gets a rebrand and it becomes practical generosity. Well, okay, now what, what should I really do? How should I really think about this? I gotta get some other things taken care of and when I can, I'll be generous. And then eventually it becomes, well, just not generosity. That's what happens to me. I'm not saying it happens to you, but I bet it does. <laughs> so the question isn't, should I be generous with my time and my energy and my attention and my love and my forgiveness and all those things? The question is how in the real world do I do that? Because it's easy to get inspired by something, but then in the real world, how do I go out and I be this type of person that I want to be, that God wants me to be, that I know would make me a better person? So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at a passage from 2 Corinthians that I think outlines this, this beautiful, intricate, sophisticated concept about how to be generous in the real world. But you have to know the background of that passage. You have to know what was happening and why Paul was writing what he did. So I'm just going to walk through just three factors, three major factors that you have to know. First of all, there was a global recession going on. Now, it wasn't the great 1929 Black Sunday recession, but I thought maybe that would help us understand a little bit. There was a global recession happening. Everywhere in the empire, in the known world, things were bad. In fact, it's kind of cool, not that this would be anything we would want to do, but historians have unearthed copies of ancient Excel spreadsheets where accountants kept track of the price of goods and how they went up. And now I wouldn't want to read those things, but some really... Smart people with time on their hands did that and then told us, hey, in the span of just a few days, goods tripled all over the empire. So you were paying, whatever, $2.99 for a, for a gallon of milk, and then a day later, you were paying 8 bucks for a gallon of milk. That would mess you up, right? So there was this global, worldwide economic downturn. So it was like airport stadium prices, but that was everywhere. Secondly, they lived in an era where there was no safety net. There was no government uh, funding, subsidies. There were no charities. There were no nonprofits. There was none of that. There was no opportunity where people are like, man, I am broke. I don't know what to do. And you turn yourself over to a local shelter or a food bank or a pantry or anything. There's none of that. If you didn't have a friend or a family member or a neighbor who had a little sympathy on you, you were toast. That's all, it just didn't exist. We have this assumption that generosity is better than not being generous. That was not true in the first century. The idea of generosity to strangers, believe it or not, is a Christian innovation. There's historians that have written about this, talked about how, how Christianity just fundamentally rewired the way the world worked. The presumption was is that you do not be generous to strangers. So there's a global recession, no safety net, and then in Israel, things are extra bad. They also have a localized famine, and so they have nothing. A gallon of milk is like 30 bucks. 
They have absolutely nothing. They're devastated. So what happens is Paul, the apostle, the guy that wrote so much of the New Testament, he gets this bright idea. And he thinks, now, hang on. I have gone around the Mediterranean planting all these international churches. You know what would be good? I should go on a tour back to all those churches, and I should say, hey, would you guys please help out the church in Jerusalem? And I'm going to collect money. But to do that, he's got to send letters to everybody warning them that he's sending people to collect money. And so what you read in much of the New Testament is his letters where he's beginning to start this process. Certainly in the passage we're reading today, it's, this, it's what's going on. So Paul is collecting famine relief for Israel. And that's what he writes about in this letter. So what do you say? What do you say in a circumstance like this? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial. What's the very severe trial? Global recession. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Paul addresses the irrationality of generosity head on. Do you, do you remember the moment that your relationship with money uh, changed? You were probably college or post-college. You remember? You had to pay for something dumb, like insurance. And you're like, wait, what? I'm paying hundreds of dollars for you to what? Do nothing? Yeah, that's how it works in case something happens. But what if nothing bad happens? Eh, that's the way it works. And you're like, this doesn't, this is, you talk about a scam. This seems like a scam. Or how about the first time you paid your utility bill? You were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Light costs money? Are you serious? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. And your parents were like, yeah, that's what we've been telling you. Turn off the lights when you leave the room. It costs. Or you paid your taxes and you were like, oh, wait a second here. I don't really care about sidewalks. Why am I paying for them? I don't, I don't want any of that stuff. And your relationship with money changes. One of my children recently paid for an oil change and it scarred her. <laughs> I'm serious, like for days. Like, are you serious? Why? This is ridiculous. It was an expensive oil change, but whatever. Your relationship with money, when, you, when it begins to, it, it, you, it impacts all these other behaviors. So you, you pay attention to prices on a menu. I don't know, maybe you were wired like this as a kid, but most of us as we're a kid were just like, I want that. And you're not paying attention to the price, but your parents are. And you're like, nope, we order off the kid's menu. But dad, I'm 14, you look 12, it's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you turn off the lights when you leave a room. You realize this is why your parents like, would get annoyed with you when you didn't know what you wanted to eat. And so you would go to the refrigerator and you would open up the refrigerator and the freezer and you would just stand there basking in the glow and the coolness of the, that appliance while you decided, what do I want to eat? And your parents are like, shut the refrigerator door. But now you understand. Or why when you're walking around in your house in February in a t-shirt and shorts and you're like, hey, dad, can you turn the heat up? And your dad's like, no, put on some pants and a sweater, come on. Because your relationship with money changes and it changes your behaviors too. And it all, it all makes sense now. Now, I want you to notice the adjectives in this passage. This is really cool what Paul is doing. Notice this. In the midst of, look at, very severe, 
overflowing, extreme, and rich. You notice what he's trying to do here. He's, trying, he's building a case here. So we're not just talking about like, oh, I had some extra money lying around and so I gave it. He's trying to help them understand what generosity looks like in the real world, in very severe trials, in extreme poverty. By the way, <laughs> I was thinking about this this week. Poverty is kind of an interesting word. The word in the original language means, it essentially means distant from wealth, which you can like see it way over there, but it's not in proximity to you. And I was thinking about when I was in college, friends wanted to go to Burger King and I had to stop at the ATM and check my balance to see if I could pay for something off the dollar menu. You know, have you ever been there? I remember going to like the Burger King or whatever and I said, oh, I got to check my, my debit account, my checking account and see if I have any money. And it's a true story. I remember seeing like $4.59. That's all the money I had in the world. And you would think I went back out to the car with my friends and said, sorry, guys, I can't go right now. But I said, good to go. <laughs> Despite the fact that in about 15 minutes, I was going to be destitute. It just doesn't, it just doesn't, absolutely does not compute. Poverty, distant from wealth. Or have you ever paid for gasoline with change that you found in your car? That feels like you're impoverished. So think of it as a showdown. You've got a severe trial and extreme poverty. And on the other side, you've got overflowing joy and rich generosity. Who is going to win out in a battle between these two? I would love to tell you that, oh, when things are tight, it's no big deal. I don't sweat it. I just sit back and relax and lay in my hammock and say, God's got this. I say, I don't worry. He cares for the sparrows. Why wouldn't he care for me? He'll provide for me my daily bread. No. When things get tight, you know what loses in my life? Joy and generosity lose. Almost every time. And Paul's saying that doesn't have to be the case. That doesn't have to be the case for us. That's wild. That's wild. In the Macedonian churches, it was joy and generosity that won out against poverty and trial. That's amazing. Now, some of you practically minded folks, you're sitting here right now. And what's going through your mind right now is you're thinking, oh, okay, Patrick, yeah. So what am I supposed to do? Not pay my bills so I can be generous to people? Okay. What am I supposed to do? Let my kids go hungry because someone else asked for some help? What am I supposed to do here? This is just not practical. Aren't I just making myself a burden to someone else? And, and those are fair questions. And that's how we get ourselves off the hook of generosity all the time. It's questions like that. Because we think of the most extreme situation and we say, well, I can't be generous in that extreme situation, so I guess I won't be generous at all. But look at what Paul says. And this is later in chapter 9, all the way down in verse 8 of chapter 9. He says, look, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, in all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. If... You are determined to be the kind of person through whom God can redistribute his wealth. God will continue to bless. That is such a hard lesson. And let me tell you, I am a person who struggles with the faith to live that way. I believe it to be true, but in the real world, I struggle with that. That God will bless me even if I let go of this thing that I'm holding on to so tightly. Radical generosity is irrational. It is. But God says, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. Secondly, I told the story about Liam. I didn't have the first one written down, but I have this one written down. So this is the official Liam story for the Sunday. 
Liam and his buddy uh, from Two Doors Down, they had a little lemonade stand. I go out to check on them, and uh, they, they said, oh, man, that guy in that truck just gave us five bucks. And they were charging like a dollar for a glass of limeade, I guess, in this case. And now, when you buy lemonade from a lemonade stand on the street from a couple kids, you're not paying for quality control, right? <laughs> the health department has not come and inspected anything. What you're, what you're paying is you're paying for adorableness, right? You're like, this is the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life. Here is some money, you know? Like, that's what you're, that's what you're paying for. But I came out and I was asking the boys how they're doing, and I said, wow, that's great. That guy gave you five bucks. So you tried to give him change, and he just said, keep it? And both of them just stopped, and they looked at each other like the concept of change did not compute. And so what they had done is this guy had given them five bucks, and they're like, thanks. <laughs> and I, I kind of, I, I mean, forced generosity. He didn't mean to be generous. They just didn't give him change. I think that's called stealing. Now, we, we unconsciously, we conflate generosity and guilt. Oh, I gotta be generous. I should do, should give, but I don't really want to. Paul very deliberately, very intentionally keeps them far apart. Notice what he says, verse 8. I am not commanding you. 8.12, for if the willingness is there. 9.5, then it will be ready as a generous gift, not one grudgingly given. Verse 7, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, right? This is super fascinating, super sophisticated, right? So you need, to, you need to buckle in your brains for just a second of what Paul's getting at here. Nowhere else, when Paul or any other author of scripture talks about virtue, nowhere else do they say, oh, do that if you want to. Think about this. Nowhere else does Paul say, hey, if it feels right, you know, try not to lie. Uh, hey, if you can and, you know, it works out in the situation, try not to commit adultery. You know, if it's, you know, well, I don't want you to feel obligated, but try not to, right? You know, if you can. Nowhere else. He doesn't do that anywhere else. But yet, when it comes to the virtue of generosity, he understands that obligation and guilt have to be separated because obligation destroys generosity. It's not generous if it's obligatory. And so Paul's very, uh, very careful to, to separate those two things. Generosity and obligation are at odds. In my years as a minister, um, I have heard one particular line of reasoning thousands of times. Thousands of times. You might have said it. I might be talking about you here. I don't recall specifically. I've heard it so much. Someone is trying to explain to me why they don't do something that is pretty straightforward and good. Why they don't read their Bible, why they don't pray, why they don't come to church, why they don't try to enhance their relationship with their wife. They're trying to explain why they don't do something that is basic and good, and they say, I would only be doing it out of guilt. I don't want to do anything out of guilt because my heart wouldn't be right, so ah, maybe eventually my motives will be better, but right now I just don't feel like it. Now listen. Doing something good for bad motives, the Bible calls hypocrisy, right? We know that. Doing the right thing out of obligation is pretty unfulfilling. It doesn't feel good. It's not fun. But what he doesn't say, and this is really important, this is the seatbelt on your brains kind of thing. Paul doesn't say, okay, well, then just don't be generous. Just don't give. Paul says, fix it and then do it. 
fix it and then do it. Don't just walk away saying, eh, I don't feel it, so I'm not going to do it. Paul says, no, no, no. In fact, in this letter, Paul writes, I wanted to warn you that Titus is coming to prepare you so that you will be generous. Not that you don't do it, but that you fix your heart. I mean, imagine any other scenario in which we tried to employ that excuse. I don't go to my kids' baseball games because I'm just not into it, so I, I, I don't go. And, you know, he'll just have to grow up without a father figure in his life. No! You would say, fix it, and then do it. That's, what, that's all Paul is saying. Fix it, and then do it. Obligation does destroy generosity. The solution is work on your desire. Finally, last point I'm going to make, and then we're going to wrap up. It's a cliche. Uh, but, you know, a lot of you have done volunteering at places like Feed My Starving Children or you've been up watching uh, TV and they'll have like, you know, save the dogs or the whales or something like that. And they'll have these pictures of these really sad whales or these really sad dogs. I don't know what a sad whale looks like. I just thought about that. But they'll have these pictures of these really sad dogs or, or maybe it's to give money to some, you know, famine relief. And they'll have these pictures of these really hungry looking kids with big eyes. And, and they'll, it'll be something like, hey, for less than a price of a cup of coffee, you can alleviate hunger. You know, you've heard all that. It, it's the appeal to compassion, the appeal to pity. Paul has a desperate scenario that he's dealing with. These churches in Jerusalem are in trouble. It's bad for them. They're going through some hard times. And it's interesting, throughout this passage about generosity, Paul never once appeals to compassion. He never says, oh, if you, these poor people, you need to give. He never once says that. He always says, no, 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 it's not about that. That's important, but it's about you and your heart and what's going on in your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. This is the very first verse that we read, and then we're going to finish. He says, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. What is that grace? That grace is a heart of generosity. It was a grace for them to be generous. Why? Because Paul realized that money, stuff, selfishness had, had lost its stranglehold on them and they were free to give. And that is a grace. When our relationship with what we think our resources are changes, it's a grace because we live in freedom without being beholden to those things. That is a grace. That is a good thing. I want us to think about the fact that you are going to have opportunities for generosity. And your generosity is going to come into conflict with real world circumstances that just totally deflate the idealism you may feel. And I want you to understand that whatever circumstances you have going on in your life, your flat tires, your furnaces, your, your future car payments, whatever it is, none of those things are a reason to not be who God has called us to be and to live with a loose grip on the resources God has blessed us with. Whether it's financial, but whether it's grace or forgiveness or love, to live with a loose grip and spread those around. Generosity, any kind of generosity, is the evidence of God's grace in our lives.